All right, everybody, welcome back. Yet another episode of the Balanced Blues Brothers podcast. And this is going to be an interesting one, uh, a little bit different than us just doing, you know, match-related stuff in the present. Uh, today, it's going to be score here with me, and we're going to really be taking a deep dive into some Chelsea history, not trying to just replicate what Blueprint is doing because they're doing it in such a more, uh, you know, direct way, talking to former owners, things like that. So what we're really focused on is not trying to get the story itself but trying to get the story with the fan experience, you know, in that and trying to, you know, really understand as a fan what that was like. And, and if you don't know, as you're a listener, if you don't know, we are going to be covering today right now, the 1980s. And that was an incredibly interesting time for the club. And I don't use interesting and in necessarily the best of terms. Um, a lot was going on, a lot of turmoil. And we'll kind of break that down start to finish. But we also had a lot of positives and we'll get to some of these, but, you know, including things like uh, John Neal and his and his management and, and really what his management signified. Um, but, you know, for some of you that don't know about the the kind of the history of us and coming into the 80s, you know, in the late 70s, um, in the er- in the early 80s, it was a very turbulent time for the club. Um, there was a really ambitious redevelopment of Stanford Bridge that was threatened uh, by financial stability of the club. Star players were being sold off, and the team were ultimately relegated in this era. Um, Further problems were caused by notorious hooliganism um, among the supporters, uh, which was a plague to the club throughout the decade. And if you're someone that's not under, you know, really familiar with football hooliganism in the in the 1980s, it was is you know even as an American, as I understand it, was it was kind of at the peak of its power. You had actual firms and, and for, you know, any Americans, that's a gang, right? What we would call gangs over here. Um, we had a lot of those going on and they were based around football, you know, supporter groups. And it just was a really tough time uh, overall for football, um, right? And if you don't understand or if you don't know, there's like this link, you know, even that, you know, these firms would span multiple countries, like with Chelsea and Rangers having the headhunters, right? So, um the Chelsea headhunters were a thing. And that was a very famous, uh, there was a very famous firm that we had, but despite that, we also had a 1982 at some of the worst times for the club. We had uh, Ken Bates uh, acquire the club from one of the Mears, family's great nephews, Brian Mears, and he bought the club for one pound. So that should tell you how bad things really were at some points in this. So, Score, I don't want to hold you up any longer. Kind of got the introduction here of where the club was at, leaving in the 70s and heading into the 80s. So, you know, starting starting first, you know, in the 80s, we had this Jeff Hurst management um, at the club, you know, managed, managed Chelsea up until 1981. And then we had 
uh, John Neal take over from there. So that's kind of where we'll start this discussion of what those years were like uh, exiting, um, you know, exiting from Hearst and entering uh, the years of, of John Neal and really what that was like. And I know there's going to be a lot more to talk about than just the managers. So without any uh, you know, further ado, I'll let you, I'll let you kind of get into that. So what was that period like as a fan? Um, what were some of your memories of it? Well, I mean, it, it was like expectations were on the floor. You know, there was no, there was no expectations really around what Chelsea could achieve. We, we were in the, I think we were in the, if I remember rightly, we were in the, what is now the championship. And we've been in the championship for quite a few uh, years. And, you know, there was kind of a, a bit of a despair, I think. You know, Chelsea had been, just 10 years before that, Chelsea had won the Cup Winners' Cup, European Cup Winners' Cup uh, and the FA Cup. And they'd beaten Real Madrid in the Cup Winners' Cup final. You know, uh, they were finishing in the top three or four in the league regularly, playing some great football with some great players. And uh, then the ownership decided to build a new stadium. Uh, and... Then there was a property crash in the eight in the nineteen seventies, and inflation went up, and prices of everything went up halfway through building it. So we only got one stand built, and it left Chelsea, I think, two million pounds in debt, which doesn't sound a lot now, but in the nineteen seventies, that was a lot of money. Uh, so Chelsea were in. So Chelsea basically had to sell all their best players to help pay off that debt, and that caused the downturn on the pitch. And there wasn't much any manager could do because the quality of players was just going down. Um, and uh, Ray Wilkins was in the side that got promoted in 1977. He was an academy player. Like, he was absolutely really incredible player. Um, we had to sell him to Manchester United for £600,000 because we couldn't afford to keep him and we needed the money to pay off some of the debts. Uh, and you know, that's where Chelsea were, really. We weren't we, you know, we weren't even remotely, we weren't even challenging to be, to get into the, to get into the top division, yet alone in the top division. Uh, it was just kind of a, there'd been a cycle of decline. It was, we kind of just, I don't think there was any expectation of fans for any kind of, like what we now call success at all. You know, we used to, we were the kind of side that would kind of knock out Liverpool, who were like the best team in Europe at that point, in the FA Cup, and then would lose to some like small team, you know, that was that was Chelsea. We did not Liverpool out of the FA Cup one season. I can't remember which season it was. But basically Liverpool were European champions and we were in the championship and we knocked them out of the FA Cup. Um and that was that was typical Chelsea at that point. You know, we'd we'd raise our game for those kind of games and then the kind of standard bog standard games we would kind of be a bit more complacent or lose or whatever. It was that was we've seen that in more recent times. We've seen it in recent times as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it was on a much bigger scale at that point. Like, I mean, we were really bad. Uh, really bad. And, yeah, and like you say, the stuff the stuff on the pit, off the pitch didn't help. It was a mess. Um, I mean, like, you know, Chelsea fans in the early 80s were like wondering if Chelsea would would go out of business. You know, there was talk about that. People were thinking about we're worried about that because, like, I think I think you alluded to this, like, Stamford Bridge and Chelsea Football Club were sold to different people. 
right? So Chelsea Football Club leased the ground from a company that owned the ground, right? And the company that owned the ground, I think it became Marler Estates. We were a property, property development uh, company who wanted to develop Stamford Bridge for flats, basically. They wanted to demolish the stadium and build flats there. Uh, and that would have destroyed Chelsea Football Club. And, you know, Ken Bates came in at the right time because Ken Bates was a stubborn a stubborn guy. <laughs> and he would try to any... To say the any, least. To say the least, yeah. And he would try any trick in the book to win. Like, he just, you know, he he was willing to get his hands dirty, you know. Uh, and Chelsea needed that at the time. The fans, liked, the fans respected Ken Bates. Even though they didn't always agree with him, they respected him because he fought for the club. Um, you know, he wrote he wrote a program notes in the program notes every single game. Like it was, uh, and you know he was he was he communicated a lot with the fans, which you know you don't get many nowadays from chairman that much. Um, so he was a different kind of chairman, and you know, and but he was taking on these property developers basically, and. Um, and you know, this was like you know, so, so all this stuff on the pitch was overshadowed, like almost it was bad on the pitch and bad off the pitch. You know, we were kind of teetering on the brink uh, as a club, and we were teetering on the brink on the pitch as well. Uh, like the early, like I think 1980, John Neal's is it first season in charge? I think it was 1981, I think it's 81 82. We finished in the worst league position in our history, which is you know. Um, quite the quite the achievement. I think it was eighty two, eighty three. Sorry. Um, yeah, Chelsea had to beat Bolton on the last day of the season to stay in the championship. Um, and if they'd gone down, they probably would have gone out of business. You know, so you don't get much bigger than that. Um, yeah, just uh, yeah, just like on facts for that, like they narrowly avoided relegation to the third division in the eighty two, eighty three season. Yeah. Um, but you know, and I'll let you get to it, but ended up signing Kerry Dixon and uh Pat Nevin for uh, in the next in the following Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that summer that that summer was a really good summer in terms of transfers. We signed um Kerry Dixon, Pat Nevin, Nigel Spackman, uh, who's a kind of midfielder, defensive midfield player, Eddie Disweski, who's a goalkeeper, a really good goalkeeper. Um and John Hollins, who'd been a club legend, came back as player coach and the cost of all of that was less than half a million pounds um and those those signings really transformed the team like it just completely changed um like the first game of, the game of that 83 84 season they won 5 0 uh, <laughs> um, um absolutely and they won the champ they won the championship comfortably that year you know, Kerry Dixon, Chelsea's third highest goal scorer of all time, I think, turned into. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, that was that was that that changed things on the pitch for sure. They obviously went because, like I said to other people about this, about this last season we've had, like when things are good on the pitch, the fans are in a much better mood and are much more um, positive about things. <laughs> when you're losing on the pitch, everything's negative, uh, and so. You know, there was a bit, and this this thing was still in the background though. It was still there. You know, this company that wanted to basically destroy the club. And so Ken Bates had to put up ticket prices to pay for legal fees. Like we had they had to there was a, and this is when 
I don't know what year it was, but this is when Chelsea Pitch Owners kind of started, how it started. It was Ken Bates' idea. Um, because whilst whilst the property developers owned the land that Stanford Bridge and was on, the actual pitch is separate from the land. So he thought he came up with this idea to sell the pitch to fans. Uh, so um because it didn't that because it technically didn't belong to the people who owned the land. Uh and then it would be much more difficult for them to start make start demolishing it and stuff because they didn't own the pitch. And it's genius, really, absolutely genius, you know. And it saved the club, um, Chelsea pitch owners. And it, it, I mean, I don't think people realize how revolutionary this thing was. It was like basically the fans got got to own a piece of the football club in a sense. Um, even the name, I think, Chelsea Football Club belongs to Chelsea pitch owners, and they kind of yes, it to the company that that is Chelsea Football Club, right? And that was Ken, Ken Bates did all of that, like, and that saved the club, you know, and uh, no question about it, because it meant that, that, you know, the property developers, like, had to spend years and lots of money trying to get around it, and they never did. Um, ultimately, the property developers went out of business. <laughs> um, and when that happened, Chelsea was were essentially saved, because, you know, the, 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 the property went back at the... the uh, the stuff went back to the bank. And then I think eventually Matthew Harding bought it. That's in the 90s. We'll talk about that next time. But yeah, so it was like this This was always going on in the background. And even though we were doing well on the pitch, but it was it was really nice to, to have a good team again and be playing some good football. And John Neal, uh, he is, he's one of my favourite Chelsea managers, honestly. Uh, oh, he was hugely important in terms yeah, of... Yeah, like... Yeah, and he was a good manager, good coach. He was able to spot a player, got the best out of players. All the players that played for him, you talk, you ask, you talk to them now. They all say how much they respected him. Um, and he's the longest-serving Chelsea. We haven't had him. He served. He was four years as Chelsea manager, and Chelsea haven't had a manager that's lasted four complete seasons since since then, since the yep. mid '80s. That's like forty years, you know. <laughs> just yeah. tell us about like this kind of short termism in managers that he didn't start with Roman Abramovich. It was around before that. Um, <laughs> it's a, it seems to be a Chelsea thing, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, hopefully, we can change that with the new the new new manager in the dugout. But yeah, yeah, it was John Neal. That was that was kind of a it was typical Chelsea in a sense because he. He built this team that, you know, got promoted and then the next season finished fifth in, you know, what is now the Premier League, but obviously it was the first division at that point, but finished fifth. So got promoted and finished fifth, which is pretty incredible. Uh, and it was a really good team. And if not for the European ban for English clubs, we probably might have, might have played in Europe uh, in the 80s, you know, because we, we had a good side. But then, as what seems to happen with Chelsea, something happens to... Make oh, it yeah. go around. And unfortunately, this was quite tragic because it was it was John Neal's own health. Um, he was not. Um, he had. Uh, he had. He had some. He had. He had illness. He had to step back from coaching. He had to. Initially, it was temporarily. Um, eventually, he had to. Uh, he had to stand down permanently. Um, and it's a shame. I think. Well, I think Ken Bates. Regrets that happened because 
if he had stayed, he probably would have been able to build a really successful Chelsea team with the players that he had. And then obviously the, the coach, his coaching ability and his ability to spot to spot players as well. Um, Chelsea probably would have, they might have, might even have won something. Might have played in Europe, might, well, not wouldn't have played in Europe, but might have, might have won something. Uh, and that could have been a, a dynasty, you know. Uh, but you know, circumstances stopped that happening, and and then kind of there was a bit more after after John Neal left. There was a bit more of a disaster again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> typical Chelsea, you know. Uh, it was because um, the guy that, that succeeded him was a Chelsea legend, John Hollins, but unfortunately he wasn't a great manager. Um, and we kind of free, we kind of almost tiptoed. We almost accidentally got relegated, a bit like Leicester. Um, nobody had us down as getting relegated around Christmas that season, I don't think. But we went on this really awful run of form, and and eventually they sacked they sacked Hollins. He'd been manager for two and a half years or something, but it was too late. Uh, and Chelsea, Chelsea actually got relegated in the playoffs. So they had relegation playoffs then. Um, I think we actually finished outside the, you know, the actual the actual relegation places, but because there were playoffs, we lost the playoffs, so we actually ended up going down. So, yeah, it was kind of a typical Chelsea thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and I mean that that's it. The season that they that we got relegated was my first season where I actually went to got to go to a game because although I've been following following Chelsea, um, and this is another thing about Chelsea in the eighties, it wasn't safe to go to Stamford Bridge, really. And I was I was still quite young and quite shy, quite sensitive, and it wouldn't have been safe for me to go to Stamford Bridge, uh, to be honest. Um, even though I kind of wanted to, I, I couldn't, you know. Um, my dad used to go used to go a few times a year. I I couldn't go to start with um, because you know Stamford Bridge was kind of a bit of a hotbed for hooliganism at times and um, racism as well was quite prevalent. Yep. Um, and you know Paul Cannavale, Chelsea's first black player, absolute legend. Top did he break? Was he did he first season eighty four? Yeah, he was in that team. He was in that John Neal team. Um, uh, but he got racially abused by his own fans, which is disgusting um, and should never have happened. I think he wrote a book about his experiences as well. Which he did. It's called Black and Blue. I think. Yes. Highly recommend that book to all Chelsea fans, especially if you're interested in that period, because it talks about Chelsea in that period and talks about his experiences, um, you know, as a black player, Chelsea's first black player, because um, it wasn't easy for him. Like he's incredible, really, what that he he succeeded at Chelsea despite all of that, you know. Um and he was a really good player. Like, you know, um I think there was one cup game where we there was one famous league cup game where we were like three nil down at half time and like against Sheffield Wednesday, I think it was, and away. And um I think they the the players said that the Sheffield Wednesday players were like like being really complacent, like uh, give me a let me score, let me score kind of thing. Because it was so easy for them. But then Canneville came on at half time, I think, and scored a couple of goals and Chelsea got back 3 3. Uh and I think he went to 4 4. And then they had to have a replay. But it was just that was a 
I've seen that game and it was incredible, really. The way that Chelsea came back, 3-0 down at half-time and came back. I think they were actually leading 4-3 and then they equalised. Um, and then we went out in the replay, I think. But, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but he was part of that team. Yeah, he was part of the John Neal team. Um, yeah, really good player, Paul Hannibal. And really important player in, in Chelsea history, really. Absolutely. He was an incredibly important person for us, not just because of, you know, the fact that he kind of broke this race barrier, but I think the reason why he was important is because it, it, it kind of, yeah, he broke a race barrier for the club and that opened up a lot. But it's important because I think of how quickly him being introduced into the side kind of forced the club to change in regards to that. Um, And, and, you know, as we progress through, you know, more of the eras in in this series, I think it'll be very obvious uh, that, you know, how quickly things change and you kind of highlighted, right. It was not safe to be at these games that, you know, the racial abuse was highly prevalent. You know, it was just a different time in the eighties. And I think that, I mean, I can't really speculate on why that was, given that A, I wasn't alive, and B, I wasn't, you know, in British culture at that time. So I don't really have much of a reference point. But it just seemed, you know, we all live across the world and know that, you know, racism 50 years ago was predominantly, you know, more active um, in in very overt forms than it is today, where it's, you know, still active, but it's a little bit more conspicuous um, than it used to be. Or it's a little more inconspicuous now, um, you know, it's more like latent racism is what I refer to it as a lot, but it's, um, it, it is interesting. And, you know, not only that, but, you know, Cannaville is still working with the club today. So clearly his impact w- was very large in terms of what he's offered and continues to offer for the club. Um, and yeah. it, you know, that, that, that was a very tumultuous period for, you know, uh, John Neal to take over in, but I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of parallels to what he did to what we're doing now, where, that we they the club stuck with the guy the results weren't the greatest at the beginning but they knew what he was building and i think if i'm not mistaken he kind of flat out told the club you know if you're going to give if you're going to have me here then give me time and we're going to build something and that's really ultimately what he did yeah he did he really did he built something really special and you know the great team played great attacking football scored lots of goals Kerry dixon was just Unbelievable, you know, and he played up front with um, uh, David Speedy, who was another great striker. They had a really good strike partnership. It was Pat Nevin on the wing, brilliant player, brilliant player, absolutely incredible. So quick, so skillful. You know, it was a great team to watch, and you know they scored a lot of goals and won a lot of games, which is, you know, which is what a fan, what anything, anything a fan can ask for, really. So we were very fortunate to have Johnny Neal's, you know, management. And, you know, kind of like we discussed and, and score, you know, very well went through as far as, you know, it took some time, but eventually we got the right play, you know, right players. And, and Neil was really able to imprint an identity on the squad and a playing style um, and really transform things. We've talked about how then, you know, we have the rise of of Cannaville um, and all that, you know, he, he represented for the club, despite a lot of the struggles and abuse that he had to unfortunately and wrongly suffer through. And and then we get to kind of this next phase after, you know, Johnny Neal um, leaves, which, you know, after he is gone, and, and granted, if, if you're not aware of this, there are very few managers in our entire history that have a longer tenure than John Neal. 
you actually have to go back to somebody that's, you know, Dave Sexton, who had 371 games in charge from 67 to 74. That's the next, that's the next, uh, you know, the only person um, in, in recent times that would have succeeded Neil in terms of, uh, you know, ma- games managed. So he had a very lasting impression on the club. And then next we go uh, to John Hollins, who was in charge from 85 to 88. And then we end the 80s by bringing in Bobby Campbell from 88 to 90, 1991. So, do, you know, what are some of your, you know, memories uh, and just kind of the sentiment of that era, right? Because what is, what was it like as a fan to go from John Neal to then the next two guys to come in with Hollins and Campbell? Because, you know, even as somebody, you know, being myself from America, not having a whole lot of familiarity and culture of the history of the club uh, and kind of having to seek it out myself, you know, and those are mostly just your your, your generic Wikipedia, Reddit diatribes, right, that are written up um, that are mostly just like factoid summations and not really kind of this nitty nittier, grittier type experience as a fan. You know, what what do you remember about the club going from that time with Neil into the, the Hollins and Campbell area in a Campbell era? I should, excuse me. And, you know, did it feel like a big departure? Did it feel like a lot of change? Um, you know, did it feel like the progress was continued? What, what were some of the, you know, just really want to get your thoughts on that era before we wrap up these eighties and uh, get into the nineties for next episode. Yeah, it was, it was quite sad because of the way that it happened because it was, a, it was health reasons. Uh, it wasn't football reasons. He wasn't sacked or anything like that. Um, but he had to step down to his health, um, which is really sad, you know, um, because I don't think he ever, I don't think he managed, did, I don't think he managed again. Um, but yeah, he was yeah. So that was really sad because we didn't. I don't think the club wanted him to go, and the fans wanted him to go at all. But obviously, we un- you understand when someone's got to step down for health, for health reasons. You know that's a really important thing. So John Hollins came in, and his first season he finished sixth, I think, in the league, which is respectable. And we also got to the final of this thing called the Four Members Cup, which is like this other competition they were kind of trialling. It never became any a serious competition. But we got to the final of that at Wembley. We went 5-1 up against Manchester City. And then we ended up winning 5-4. So, you know, typical drama um, for Chelsea before winning winning something. <laughs> Although I wouldn't count it as, I don't think anyone counted it as a major trophy. But still, his first season was actually really good. But then it kind of went... Uh, went wrong, you know, and there was a lot of goodwill behind him because obviously he was a Chelsea legend from the 1970s Cup team, and because he'd been a coach uh, under um, John Neal, so everyone assumed that you know he was a good coach as well. And, and obviously his first season went well, but you know, I think it's um, 87, 88, things started to go wrong. Discontent on the terraces, um, you know, it was it's kind of similar to the criticism that Frank Lampard gets. It's like you know, we're a club, you're a club legend, and we love you, but you know, you're not you're not doing the job on the pitch in terms of coaching, and um, you need to move on, you know. And like we went four months without a, a win, and ended up getting relegated, um, which was obviously awful. Yeah, it's. I mean, it was such a formative time for the club to to kind of go through this stage, um, you know, and it just formative because of the tumultuous aspects to it. 
Um, I think that was the kind of, even as a fan trying to, you know, hearing what you have to say and then kind of, kind of checking my priors, right. With what I've read previously, it, it just was such an up and down, like tumultuous time. And it just, like you said, you talked about like the problems, the terrorists, all these different things, right. It's just, I mean, the fans, a lot of things were going on, um, in that time. And, you know, as a, as a fan, I'm sure. Part of me thinks it would be a lot of tumultuous stuff, but the other part of me thinks as a fan, it would have just kind of been this time where you didn't have the expectations that you have today. So the ups and downs and the, you know, the, 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 the upheaval and the chaos probably seemed still very important and something that you were paying attention to. But I think that today we would have had to have some type of relevant level of uh, comparison, right, in terms of chaos or anything like that. You know, I think that I don't think that fans would have tolerated that as nearly as well as maybe they did or didn't back then. Once again, I don't have that greatest reference point, but I I just think that what I can imagine if I was in those seats and you know I'm watching and I, and given the history of the club, how they only really had one title, um, you know, the FA Cup and one league title previously, I would have not been expecting as much. And you know, I think you, and this is maybe for more of the modern audience, but. You know, we always hear about this football Twitter kind of trope, joke, whatever you want to say, you know, like, you know, support us when we're shit, you know, kind of when we're relegated, would you still be here? And I think that's a really important thing to talk about, right? Because in the 80s, that was a real conversation in the 80s, right? I and mean, that, that was not something that was just a joke, right? Yeah. You did have to stick with this team through thick and thin. And yeah. I and, and part of me, you know, I, as somebody in my own sports fan, fanhood, you know, my my Indianapolis Colts have been pretty bad for a long time, you know, or a few years, several years now. We've just not been very great, um, you know, but I still watching the games. You know, I, I still went to games, you know, this past year. And what I'm trying to get at with that analogy is that that's probably how I would have approached it, too. Let's just let's just enjoy this, you know, meet up with some friends, watch the game. It's something to do. You know, have they win. Great. If they lose, well, they'll be there next week. Um it just to me seems like there probably would have been more of a culture around the club as a, other than just winning. And I think that, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit, you know, uh, before the chat in, in parallels to the 2019, 2020 season. But I think that, like as a supporter, was that something that was maybe, I don't want to say more fun, but when you did have big upsets or you beat a big team or you did lift, you know, cop or you got promoted, I almost have to think that feeling was so much of a higher point than what it maybe is sometimes when success is so highly expected. Was that kind of was that kind of the yeah. vibe as a fan? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a period where we we'd not won anything, like I, like uh, we and we weren't expected to really. Liverpool were the dominant side. Um, Man United were a good cup side at that point. It was before they. Started dominating under Ferguson, and um, so Chelsea weren't expected to win, like to be a team that won things every season. Obviously, everyone knew our history, and that we had a history of, you know, that it was history. It was, yeah, you know, it wasn't present. And Chelsea fans, obviously, Chelsea fans have always wanted to win things, but uh, and of course, Chelsea fans, I think they even then they, you know, but realistically, we knew our best chance of a trophy was the FA Cup. Or, League Cup, and we used to get giant killed quite a lot, um, which was became an annoying thing. <laughs> um, 
and uh, we just, you know, we just never quite got there. We got to some semi-finals, I think, um, and I can't remember what, what year it was. We got to a league cut semi-final in the mid '80s, and then got knocked out by Sunderland. I think it was, um, if I remember rightly, which who were worse than us at the time. You know, then we should not have lost really, but we did, and uh, so that was kind of it. It like, was no kind of big expectation of like we have to be dominant, we have to win something every season, we have to, and like when you don't have that expectation, anything you, you do achieve is kind of a it means more because you're not expecting as much. So, um, and we'll talk about the nineties and like you know next next time and that that Chelsea won their first trophy for twenty six years and that was a big moment, but. Yeah, I mean, there was kind of we kind of obviously we aspired to win things, we wanted to win things, but we also knew that the chances of that happening were quite small, you know. And so we but we had a competitive team for a lot of for a lot of the eighties. We played good attacking football that we enjoyed watching, and actually sometimes finished high up in the league as well. So um, it was you know it was enjoyable, but we didn't really expect to win the trophy. Anything we won would have been. A bonus, and that's a shift in the culture to what it is now, for sure. Definitely is a different different culture um, today than what it was then, and I think that's what's so interesting to hear about. Just kind of the you know trip through down you know, memory lane as far as what we used to be, and you know I know we get a lot of stick sometimes from other fan bases how we don't have this historic traditions, you know, and all that crap. But I just think um, it almost at times it makes what's going on today so much more valuable given what we had to go through to get to being one of those clubs that sits at the uh you know the english and european elites um and you know we'll, we'll kind of we're not like i said we're not trying to just copy the blueprint here we're trying to do our own thing and clearly we are but you know it'll be interesting as we talk through more of this you know history of the club leading up to the roman abramovich and into the roman abramovich era uh just how i think it'll be fun as a listener to compare and contrast the two differences, because I think it's easy to make an argument that at times, you know, this club has transformed itself, you know, every 20 to 30 years. And, and I think that we're on that cycle right now, like in the present with Todd Bowley and, you know, his Clear Lake ownership, we're in this process of changing how everything's been done, kind of having this redevelopment of the model, all of these different things. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know if you have any like kind of final remarks or closing statements before we uh, wrap up and get ready for our next part in about the nineties. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would we, I didn't, didn't mention is um, Bobby Campbell coming in uh, when we just before we got relegated, succeeding John Hollins, and he couldn't stop us getting relegated. But um, the next season, um, recruited well, bought some experienced players. Um, kept most of the, the squad that we already had. I think a few left, like Pat Nevin went to Everton. Um, but generally, a lot of that squad stayed, had stayed together. Uh, and um, and then you had Gordon Jury as well, who was this young striker coming through, really talented striker, uh, scored a lot of goals. And the next season, it's funny you talk about expectations because when we got relegated, the Chelsea fans expected to get promoted. There was an like that season we got promoted 88 89. Um, it wasn't as fun as 
the John Neal promotion because we expected to get promoted. It was yep. like you know we we should be winning this this league, the championship. Uh, it was called the first, it was the second division then, but it was obviously now the championship. And we did. I mean, we got ninety nine points, twenty six came unbeaten run. Um, dominated that league that year. Um, won the title. You know, after you, you know, we won the what, what, the championship title. Like Burnley won it last last year. Uh, or just won it. Uh, and that was satisfying. You know, it was. I think we won it against we won it against Leeds as well because Leeds were down there at that point. Um, and so uh, that was a great. It was a great, uh, great season. You know, we 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 had a, t- a good team. We had people like Tony Dorigo coming in at left back, um, who was a really good left back. We bought David Besant for a club record fee, uh, the goalkeeper, um, and he came into the side during the season and had a huge impact as well. Um, so yeah, the side was had evolved a little bit, but it was still you still had Kerry Dixon. Uh, and yeah, he was still a big part of that team, and you know, scoring, still scoring goals, you know, and got promoted. So that was that was kind of the the end of the eighties. Like we just got back into the the top division. I think the first season we got we came back, we finished fifth again, as well. Nineteen ninety, we finished fifth, um, and so we were kind of established back in the first division by the end of the eighties. Um, at the same time. The stuff was still going on in the background with the club. And, you know, are we going to, we'd had the Save the Bridge campaign, you'd had Chelsea pitch owners. Yep. You know, we were getting to a point where, where the club could have been, we're getting close to being saved, but it still wasn't completely done yet. Um, You know, but I think people were a bit more confident than they had been at that point. So, but there was still a battle going on, you know, uh, in court and things, but, uh, but on the pitch, you know, it was a lot more positive by the end of the 80s. Uh, and uh, the Taylor report come in, which had basically said every stadium in the Premier League or top division has to be all-seater. So we knew that was coming. We knew we had to redevelop the stadium at some point. Once we had got the stadium and we had permission, and we owned the stadium, we, we, we could then develop it. Um, so, yeah, it was a kind of positive end to the 80s, certainly on the pitch. And you know, it kind of sets sets us up for moving into the 90s. It really does. And, yeah, things definitely, fortune started to turn a bit in the 90s. And I think I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about the 90s more from you in the next episode with, you know, we had the appointments of, you know, Rude Hewlett, um, you know, player, uh, you know, big player, kind of a player manager, if I'm not mistaken. And then we had this kind of same thing with Gianluca Viali, uh, rest in peace. Um, and, and, you know, just, a, a lot of players that I remember, you know, we had, you know, uh, you know, who like I said, Viali, Sola, um, a lot of other, you know, more bit part, you know, players more in there too, like Di Matteo. I've literally got to yeah. shake the guy's hand before, um, you know, it's, uh, there are a lot of guys that I remember maybe as a fan in the two thousands, uh, you know, being talked about, but never getting to watch, but then going back and watching them. And, and really being impressed by them. And so I'm really interested to hear that part of it, but um, yeah, great, you know, really, really fun conversation to have with you here and just kind of hear, you know, the history breakdown perspective and experience of what was going on. Um, and, you know, it, just such a compare and contrast to what we have today. And overall, I think that's what's so interesting is we're talking about the same club, but it just sounds so drastically different. And really, mm-hmm. you know, although that was 40 years ago, 
Uh, 40 years is not the longest amount of time, given that we've been around for well over 100 and, you know, approaching 120 years now. Um, so, you know, maybe only 30% of our of our history has expired within that last 40 years. So very interesting. Looking forward to it. Thanks again for doing this. Um, and for any listeners Welcome. out there, you know, for all of you, uh, keep the blue flag flying high.